Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Luke 1, 26-38 In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And so I think we see the humble obedience, the faith that we talked about in the circumstance of Mary's motherhood of Christ. And this repudiates both those who denigrate the body or those who would question the deity of the human Jesus. It demands a recognition of the goodness of creation and even the messy side of creation in childbirth. God shows up in the midst of the created order, in the midst of creation, affirming its goodness, its sacredness, and affirming he is Emmanuel, God with us. As Augustine says, Christ defends Mary's motherhood against a Manichaean by saying, She whom you despise, O Manichaean, is my mother, but she was formed by my hand. If I could have been defiled in making her, I could have been defiled in being born of her. Plato's parable of the cave is an odd thing to bring up on Christmas, but I think it depicts a common understanding. And the opposite movement uh, may be a very popular alternative to that which is occurring in the virgin birth. If one thinks of the cave as a womb, the entire struggle in the story is to escape the, the cave, the womb, or the material world, to set it aside and to achieve the singular source of light, the sun. And so in the story, if you've heard the story, those imprisoned in the cave, which of course is a metaphor for the world and all of the material world, 
Though we live in a world of shadows in which the only light is from a fire behind them. And of course the shadows means, oh this is not real. But the prisoner turned philosopher, he journeys toward the sun, representative of transcendent philosophical truth. That is, we have to escape the material world to come to this transcendent order. And as he journeys away from the cave, the womb, or away from material reality, the philosopher, the ideal person, of course, in Greek philosophy, draws close to transcendent truth. But of course, with the birth of Christ, it is the opposite story. The equivalent of the singular light, or the sole source of truth, comes to inhabit the womb. This not only challenges Greek thought, but I think it just challenges human thought. It challenges a predominant form of understanding. There is an obvious impossibility posed in a virgin giving birth. But this impossibility is a sign of the even more profound seeming impossibility of God becoming human. This is on the order of, in Plato's terms, the cave housing the sun, or the motherly and earthly encompassing and housing ultimate reality. That's an impossibility for the Greeks and for most of humanity. Jesus, born of a virgin, is the bringing together of the human and divine, of heaven and earth, in a way that is inconceivable, maybe for most people. And Plato's parable of the cave, I think, captures the fact that for most people in most of history, assent to the absolute, whether the absolute truth, the place of God, is to shed the finite, the material, the relative. But in the incarnation signaled by the virgin birth, all his horizontal and vertical wires are crossed. It is more supernatural than the pagan you know, portrayal of the coupling of the gods. As it is by sheer power, it does not call upon the sexual act. Justin Martyr in 165 Refuting comparisons between the virgin birth and mythological couplings of the gods, writes of the spirit which, when it came upon the virgin and overshadowed her, caused her to conceive not by intercourse, but by power. Ambrose of Milan, in 339, writes that a virgin should give birth is a sign of no human, but of divine mystery. Pagans could easily conceive of sex among the gods, but the virgin birth bypasses the sex act. However, it's also more natural and integrated with the human condition in the manner of the birth, in the manner of Jesus' life, in that Jesus will suffer, die, and experience the human predicament in all of its fullness, which is maybe even more scandalous to the pagan mind. The Greek and pagan, but maybe just the human idea of God, is inverted in the virgin birth. As the fully human and the fully divine 
are fused, intermixed in the motherhood of Mary. She gives birth to one who is fully God and fully human, redefining both, redefining both humanity and deity. Beginning with the virgin birth is a subversion of the world as people know it, as the pagans know it, as the Greeks know it. But by the same token, Greek and pagan thought is going to continue to wreak havoc in the Christian conception of things. So in early Christian heresies, the Gnostics, Marcion, one, you know, this is very early, the first century, Valentinius, they argued that the created order is evil and that the soul had to escape the body in order to achieve enlightenment. So Christ could not have become a human body without loss of divinity. Likewise, the Docetists, who shared a kind of Gnostic, Greek, Christian worldview, claim, if he suffered, he was not God. If he was God, he did not suffer. But Christian apologists of the first and second century refuted this Ignatius, Irenaeus, Tertullian. They appeal specifically to the virgin birth to defend the incarnation against Gnostic and Docetic opponents, appealing primarily to Mary's human motherhood as evidence of Christ's humanity. In the words of Ignatius, be deaf then to any talk that ignores Jesus Christ of David's lineage, of Mary who was really born, ate and drank, was really persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was really crucified and died. Tertullian goes to great lengths to emphasize the fleshiness of the birth of Christ, specifically in argument with Marcion. This is Tertullian. Come now, beginning from the nativity itself, declaim against the uncleanness of the generative elements within the womb the filthy concretion of fluid and blood, of the growth of the flesh for nine months long out of that very mire. Describe the womb as it enlarges from day to day, heavy, troublesome, restless even in sleep, changeful in its feelings of dislike and desire. Inveigh now likewise against the shame itself of a woman in travail, which, however, ought rather to be honored in consideration of that peril, or to be held sacred in respect of the mystery of nature. Of course, you are horrified also at the infant, who is shed into life with the embarrassments which accompany it from the womb. This reverend course of nature you, O Marcion, are pleased to spit upon. And yet, in what way were you born? You detest a human being at his birth. Then after what fashion do you love anybody? Well then, loving man, loving Christ, loved his nativity also, and his flesh as well. Our birth he reforms from death by a second birth from heaven. And so for Tertullian, the human flesh which unites Christ with Mary is an intrinsic part of his identity, as the identity of one who is God and man. 
For without her, there can be no true salvation of the flesh, he says. Here is recreation. In the 5th century, the problem is reversed as Nestorians referred to Mary as Christokos. To emphasize Mary was only the mother of the humanity of Christ and not his divinity. And to correct this division, the humanity and deity of Christ, the Council of Ephesus, in 431, affirmed in, in, by the Council of Chalcedon, they call Mary Theotokos, God-bearer, to affirm the divine and human unity of Christ. The definition of Chalcedon describes Christ as truly God and truly man, as regards his godhood begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards of his manhood for us and for our salvation. Of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, then Theotokos. It may be that the focus on and eventual veneration of Mary did not translate into a full embrace of the feminine, of motherhood, or the earthly. There are abundant signs in scripture in the early church that women were apostles, they were prophets, they were deaconesses, they were missionaries, they were ministers, they were evangelists, they were counted equal to men. And the tendency to gradually subordinate the feminine aspect of God was marked by the simultaneous denigration of women. And the shift is marked in the portrayal of the Trinity and of Mary, in which Mary is ironically made more prominent and the Holy Spirit, or that feminine aspect of God, disappears. And where God is only masculine, the male is most divine-like. And women are completed by men, so that theirs is a complementary role, lacking its own substance. And so patriarchy, monarchy, the privileging of fathers and sons, and a society premised on male sameness, it flowed from a masculine image of God. And at the same time, the incorporating, birthing, empathic, groaning qualities of the Holy Spirit, they tended to be written over or drawn over, literally, and masculine images became predominant. And so, ironically, too much focus on Mary may have meant the divine feminine is overlooked. And through the denigration of womanhood and the earthly, this can be traced maybe back to Augustine, but interestingly, it's Augustine who describes the virgin birth in very orthodox terms. In one of his Christmas Day sermons, it's actually based on Psalms 85:11. He describes the virgin birth as a joyous merger of heaven and earth. Truth, which is in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18, has sprung from the earth in order also to be in the bosom of his mother. Truth, by which the world is held together, has sprung from the earth in order to be carried in a woman's arms. Truth, on which the bliss of the angels is incorruptibly nourished has sprung from the earth in order to be suckled at breasts of flesh. Truth, which heaven is not big enough to hold, has sprung from the earth 
in order to be placed in a manger. And so in, despite his kind of patriarchal tendencies, his tendencies to denigrate the body, even Augustine affirms the goodness of the body, including the female body. And so Plato, maybe representative of another humanity, would deny both the womb and the tomb any kind of final reality. He would deny the reality of pain, suffering, and death. He would really deny the reality of the material world. But Jesus begins his life with the trauma of birth, and he ends it with the trauma of the passion, the trauma of sweating blood in the garden of Gethsemane, and being crucified on Golgotha. He begins life, we believe, in a cave located in Bethlehem and buried in a very similar cave-like tomb outside of Jerusalem. And so Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, means God's incarnate presence is with us. And so where the truth of Plato is philosophical, it's in the head, it's cold and distant, the truth of Jesus is in the womb, in the tomb, in the earth, amongst all of us, in all the places between womb and tomb. And so this Advent season, we're not awaiting the birth of Jesus, but we're recognizing the implications of his birth 2,000 years ago. God is with us, Emmanuel. And this is the season when we are to fully acknowledge the reality of his presence. His presence in our lives, his presence all around us, and we're to rejoice and celebrate this reality. And so in Plato's cave, we encounter maybe the symptomatic problem in human religion, in human philosophy, in human thought, in that it would fly toward the sun to gain access to God. But in Christ, this world is turned upside down as the sun the Son of God has come to earth. In the human economy, there is a forgetting of life and a kind of death-dealing grab for truth that's beyond the stars. But the guiding star of Christmas night points us to a humble manger located in a cave outside of Bethlehem where God is Emmanuel, God with us. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.